Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Hello, everyone. Lieutenant Joe Pangaro here. You know, one of the things that we talk about with safety and security, because it's very important, you know, in our, in our day and age, we're getting ready for schools to open all across the country. We need to be prepared. The wave of violence, the active shooter incidents that we've seen is only increasing. The numbers have gone up uh, steadily through the pandemic and uh, through today. You know, now it's uh, the numbers have already matched last year, which was the highest on record. And we've already matched that halfway through the year. So what I want to do today, I'm going to talk about a specific group of people that we need to be concerned about in our schools. These are our special needs community, our kids on the spectrum, and people that have other kind of problems that are in our schools. Maybe it's your child, maybe it's your nephew, maybe it's your granddaughter or grandson. Maybe it's a friend's child that you know is in this community. And how do we protect them? What do we do to help them? All right, so one of the things that I do is I provide safety and security training to all schools, businesses, religious facilities, all these places. When I worked in a school district as the director of school safety and security, I noticed that this particular community was not specifically included in all of the drills we did. They were, I don't say left out, but they were not considered in the same way the rest of the population in the school was. And I said, that's not right. When it comes to violence, the reality is here, as harsh as this sounds, is that these kids can die too in an active shooter event. So therefore, we need to do something. We need to figure out some way to help them. So I created a program uh, for our special needs kids in our schools, and I'm going to kind of go over that today. So if you're listening to this now and you can get on the phone real quick and tell somebody to jump on and listen, that would be great. If not, they can find it in the podcast uh, files. Uh, I'll make sure we we identify it as uh, safety and security for uh, our kids on the spectrum and our special needs community. So you can find it later on. But I really do want to go over this because I think it's extremely important for us to take a look at it. All right. So where, where do you start with a thing like this? Well, first of all, the administration of your school has got to be on board to say this is something that we definitely want to do. We need to look at what we do, how we do it. All right, so I had some help here. I went to some of the people in my school district who were the experts uh, on, on working with kids on the spectrum and people who have special needs. Now, I write for a lot of publications, and I write for uh, Autism Parenting Magazine, which is a great magazine. Uh, so if you want to take a look at that, go look it up if, if you're involved in this in any way. But that's one of the things uh, that I like to do, and I like to include this community in everything when I think about safety and security. So we got to remember, we must respond, we must prepare to respond to school violence everywhere, every place, every business. But let's talk about schools today. And that includes our kids on the spectrum. How we prepare our students to react to a lockdown or an evacuation will depend on making sure they're prepared in advance. Because we all know, anyone who's dealt with this population knows that they like routine. And when you go out of routine, you can really upset them, which is one of the reasons I think uh, when I spoke to a lot of school districts, why they don't do more, because it would really upset the kids. Uh, it would upset their schedule, it would upset their routine, and that causes more problems in the classroom. So the idea is that we got to prepare them in advance 
uh, right, right away, right from the beginning, so this becomes part of their routine so we can help them stay safe and secure. All right? Uh, I was presenting to a teacher's convention not too long ago, and I love teachers. Teachers are our first line uh, with our kids. They help our kids grow and learn and be safe in this modern world. So uh, when I was presenting uh, at this convention, I had talked about preparing our kids and including them in drills and doing things with them. And this woman, she was a teacher, and she stood up and she says, Lieutenant, I don't think we should do that with the kids. I think it's too, uh, it's too different for them, and I think it would cause them lots and lots of trouble, uh, upsetness and meltdowns and all of that. And I said, specifically, as harsh as it sounds, like I said, I said, I understand that's a concern and that's a problem. Uh, I know it is. I, I've seen it happen. Uh, it takes a lot of patience and care and love for our teachers to help our kids on the spectrum and, and all our families. But the reality is these kids can get killed in an active shooter in too. So we want to make sure we do everything we can. All right. So I, I was concerned with some areas and I want to break down into specific items. So providing information to the kids preparing the kids to respond to an emergency, what the teachers can do with the kids during a lockdown drill or a real event, and what training can benefit the special needs community and their teachers. Those are the kind of areas that I wanted to look at, and I asked the experts uh, some questions, and based on their answers, I tried to put this together. So, number one, what should we tell the kids about safety and security and at school? What do we tell our special needs population? When it comes to what we should tell our kids on the spectrum, we've got to keep it simple. Uh, and maybe use some role play before a drill to prepare them for what it will be like when a drill takes place or a real event takes place, right? So you get the idea. You start to introduce the concepts to them before there's an emergency, right? Because what do I say all the time? What's my saying, right? The first time we respond to something, we don't want it to be the first time we thought about it. So that's here this goes. We have to prepare them. Start to talk about it. Tell them we're going to do something different and start to work your way through it. So what you say to the kids obviously varies by the age of the student. Um, saying something along the lines of, it is our job of the adults in the school to make everybody safe. We do drills and other activities to help us practice safety. Everybody here gets to be a part of that, right? That kind of a thing to help include the kids. Right, when should we tell the kids about the drills and our safety and security concerns? Some students will likely feel very anxious and need additional explanation or reassurance, maybe one-on-one. -on -one. But in general, most kids on the spectrum should be told the same thing as every other student. Specific classes and students should have additional information as determined by the teacher or the other adults who know them well, all right? Consult with the parents or guardians and get their input as they know their child best. So this is a, this is a holistic approach. Everyone has to be involved here in your district. Parents, teachers, administrators, everybody to help these kids. Important, remember, all of these tips, everything that we're talking about here should be presented to every teacher, administrator, or aide because you know what? You don't know who's going to be with the kids in advance when something happens. So you might have a special needs teacher with the class and she gets distracted, injured, or out of play in somehow. And now you have a teacher from a class that's not got special needs kids in it. That teacher needs to know what to do too. Maybe the principal is with the kids when something happens. The principal needs to know what to do. She knows how to, how to, needs to know how to uh, react with our special needs kids during a lockdown or an event like that. So everyone in the district needs to be trained in this particular thing. All right. Should we tell the kids about the nature of these potential threats? All right. So it, it, we say this all the time. Everything is age appropriate. When I teach high school kids and middle school kids about active shooters, they understand the concept. Somebody's coming in the building with a gun and going to try and shoot them down and kill them. Very harsh 
But that's the reality. That's what we deal with when it comes to this. All right. We go to kindergartners and we don't tell kindergartners that the, uh, you know, there's a bad man going to come in and shoot you and kill you. That's not age appropriate. Some of them are pretty savvy and they understand. And maybe their parents talk to them about that, their brothers and sisters. But we do age appropriate. Well, we do also um, ability appropriate. You know, telling some of these kids about an active shooter, they may not understand that at all. We want to talk to them about being safe and dangerous. Right? Because each child has a different cognitive level and unique personality, the teacher should decide what, if anything, should be explained regarding the threats in conjunction with the parents. This should be done um, in advance, talk to the parents, because half the class's parents might say, yes, tell my child about it, we talk about it. The other half might say, I don't know, I don't think that's good. Talk about safety and security instead of talking about active shooters. Right, so very important that we, we look at it correctly. How can we prepare the kids for participating in a drill before a drill? Ah, very important. Drills are extremely important. Now, for years, we've all done uh, fire drills, right? The alarm gets pulled, everybody knows where to go, they know how to lead, they know how to count up everybody, we know where to go outside, and we wait till we're clear. The reason we do that drill over and over and over again is that in an emergency, everybody knows what to do. They know where to go and respond. Well, for violence, we have to do the same things. We have to practice the same stuff. That's why we do lockdown drills, right? Isn't that why we lock down in our businesses, our schools, everywhere? We should be practicing this everywhere so that we know what to do, our people know what to do, our students know what to do. So how can we prepare the kids for a drill before it? Again, tell them what to expect as clearly as possible. You might hear loud noises. You might have to sit in place for a while. The more they know about what to expect, the better they can be prepared to handle it. If an individual child has difficulty, the teacher should take the appropriate actions to ensure the child is not traumatized by the drill. Again, individual children should be accommodated as needed, and that's working with the parents and the teacher to understand each individual child and what's best for that child. But telling them ahead of time, you could hear loud noises. You might see police officers. You might see fire trucks. You might hear people running around. Bells could be ringing, uh, notifications on our, our loudspeakers, right? You want to prepare them in advance for what's going to happen so it's not a surprise when it happens, right? What do we do with the kids when the call comes to lockdown or shelter in place? Great question, right? What do we do when we have our kids here, you know, and what do we lock them down? For the most part, and there could be exceptions to this. They should be treated like every other student. We drill so kids are safe in a real emergency, so all kids need to be prepared. The teacher or the aide should tell the students what's going on and remind them what they should do to be safe. The staff should take care to assist the children throughout the process and monitor their emotional responses. Very, very important. Right? Paying attention to what's going on with the individual kids. Because it's a drill, but we certainly don't want to cause them undue stress. But the reality is, if there was a shooter, this would all be going on for real. So we have to do what we can to prepare them uh, to help them survive like everyone else in the building. What do we do during a lockdown drill with the kids? Well, the teacher, the aides, the other adults should plan ahead to have activities that will keep the students quietly occupied. This could include games, books, iPads with headphones. Uh, in some classes, teachers have lockdown bins. This is a great idea. I saw this. Uh, these teachers had these lockdown bins uh, that contain the items they need to help the kids participate. And it lessens any anxiety as they wait for the end of the drill or other action in a real event, right? So they have things to do in advance because you might be sitting there for an hour or two hours or three hours if it was a real event. So you want to be prepared for that. An important consideration, headphones and other distraction items used in special needs classrooms need to be placed into go bags.
that can travel with each child if they leave the classroom. So what's a go bag? Right, go bags are, every teacher should have them. Every staff member in your school district, uh, in your actually in your business, everywhere should have them. A go bag contains things you would need if you had to lock down for a couple of hours. Some water, a snack, some paper, um, first aid kits, things like that. It's a backpack, and then everyone carries it with them. So if you're going to take headphones, you got to make sure you have those things in your backpack should you have to evacuate one part of the building and go to another where you're going to lock down. Now you have the things for the kids to do. If they're just in their bins in their room and you happen to be out in another part of the building, that's not going to be helpful. So consider that. If the drill was a real event and the kids were locked down for an over an hour, what concerns do you have and how, how would you deal with the kids during that time? Preparation is the key, just like I said. Having the items that kids will use to stay focused and calm during a prolonged event uh, and having it at the hand ready is vital preparation plans. Sensory items such as putties, lotions, brushes should all be included. Whatever you would use for sensory items, uh, you should have a pack of them ready to go because you may have to leave the room. Or if you do leave the room, somebody should take it with them in case you get locked down somewhere else in the school because we never know. This, this is unpredictable, right? Right. Would there be any problems with a full-scale drill involving the police? Would the kids be too scared? Okay. Uh, if it's possible, giving the students a preview of what, what to expect would be helpful. Always. So they get the, the message here over and over. Preparation, preparing them mentally, now physically. What would happen during a drill? How would we do it? Maybe the police could go and speak to the students ahead of time so the kids could see the uniforms and the other things that they might be exposed to during a drill. Have the cops stop by. Reach out to your local police and say, could you come and speak to the kids? Talk to the kids about safety and security. And then they get used to seeing the officer. They get used to seeing the uniform and all the equipment that a cop might carry with them. So contacting the uh, local police is, is very important and a good idea. Let the police know and schedule a visit. Let them know why this is important, right? Uh, officers everywhere really want to do the right thing. You let them know we're helping our special needs kids do this, and we would like you to stop by and get to meet the class and make it kind of regular so they get used to seeing the police officer, right? It's not just one time and then you don't see them for eight months, and then there's an event and they don't remember. They want to see the police officer all the time. So connecting with the police is extremely important, all right? Uh, is there any specific training you think would benefit the special needs population with reference to security activities? Right? That's a question. Role playing is good. Right? That's the specialized training. In a controlled environment so the kids get used to all the sights and sounds of a drill or an event in advance of the real thing. So you might want to do this when you're not having a drill. You might want to tell the kids in your special needs class, okay, this is a drill, and have them get up get their stuff. If you're going to evacuate, have them evacuate on their own. Let the principal know, work it out, maybe have an officer stop by, whatever you need to do to role play it before you do a real drill or before a real event takes place. Go over the processes to help the kids become comfortable. Get used to knowing what they're going to do and where they're going to go when you take them. Or they're going to lock down in their room. Do it in the room. Lock it down and stay there for an hour. Use all the stuff in the uh, sensory bin or whatever and see how it goes. You don't want the first time the kids are exposed to this to be the first time you ever thought about it. See how that works? I, there are parental and guardian concerns, of course. In any classroom where a child's parents or guardians strongly object to their child participating in drills for whatever reason, I believe we should take the time to discuss the parents' concerns to impress on them the need for every child to be prepared. You know, some parents, uh, I've met lots and lots of parents uh, in the course of my, my work, and some of them... Uh, they love their kids so much and they're just they're so afraid 
that the child is going to be negatively impacted by a drill or talking about responding to, to dangers and all that, that they just don't want it to happen. They, they'll take their chances that everything will be good if something did happen. And that's understandable. Uh, I don't think it's the best way to go. I think we need to include these kids in everything that we do in life. They're part of every part of our lives. And safety and security is it. But talk to your parents and see if you can help them uh, be more comfortable with it. What would make them comfortable to have your child, their child doing a drill or doing lockdown or, or being talked to about uh, potential violence in the school? I think that's important. You might want to consider an opt-out choice for them. All right, if that doesn't work, if talking to them and they're still just adamant, they don't want their kid involved, they're afraid, give them an opt-out. Right? They can opt out, let them know we're doing a drill on this particular day and their student can be picked up and taken out, can skip school that day, whatever it is. Um, the opt-out function, and I use that for everyone when I do big drills in schools uh, because there could be kids that are not in the special needs class but are also uh, very sensitive to danger. Maybe they've had something happen to them in the past and the parent wants to opt them out. So an opt-out is always good when you're doing a drill. I, I prefer the kids all be there because in a real event, they're going to be there. Um, but if they have to opt out, they have to opt out. Right? And our special needs kids are particularly um, vulnerable to danger like this if they don't know what to do. So we want to make sure we do everything we can to help them. Okay? So I know that's a little different way uh, to start off my show. Normally, uh, you know, we start off with a round table. We look at the world. We see what's going on. But I have to tell you, with school starting up, uh, and many places it's starting up very soon, the whole idea of... Uh, Helping our special needs kids be safe and secure in school, I think, is extremely important. Matter of fact, uh, that program that I just did there comes from a program that I teach. And what we're going to do is I think we're going to turn that into some type of a, a webinar uh, that we're going to put out for free. Uh, schools can, can click on it. They can learn the material. And anybody who wants a copy of the PowerPoint so that they can help their schools be safe and secure... Uh, we're going to set up a link where you can uh, click on, put your, put in your email address, um, watch the video, the webinar, uh, and then we will send you a copy of the PowerPoint so that you can uh, run it at your school, uh, or you can, uh, if it's a, if you're just if you're not a, a school teacher but you know a school teacher, you want to give it to them. Uh, you're a family member of uh, of a special needs child and you want your school to deal with this properly. You can certainly uh, get a copy of that PowerPoint and you can send that to your school to help them. So that's why I started the, the program this week, uh, this way. There, there is, uh, I know in the southern states, uh, I think I think Florida started today, if I'm not sure. Um, but I'm not sure because my cousin's a teacher down there and she was all excited today was going to be your first day or tomorrow. Either way, I think it's very, very soon. Um, so school's opening and we want to make sure that we protect everybody as best as we can because, uh, as we all know, these school shootings and active shootings in workplaces or whatever, uh, the, the statistics show us that 2022 has already reached the statistics of 2021, which was the uh, the most incidents of active shooters uh, so far was 2021. And 2022 has already uh, caught up to 2021. So it's, it's just going to be uh, more incidents as we go forward, and we have to be prepared. So I want to make sure our kids are prepared. So let's let's take a look around now. Let's let's look at the world and see what's going on. Some other things. Now we see that President Biden um, apparently has had a relapse of COVID. Now he's been double vaccinated. He's been double boosted, and he took uh, I can't think of the name of the medication uh, that he took, but it's uh, it's an anti it's an antiviral. 
that he took, and it's supposed to help uh, stop uh, stop the advance of COVID. And unfortunately, with this particular medicine, while it may do that, it also leads to bounce back. Uh, you, you know, you're negative for a couple of days, and then boom, you're positive again. I believe Dr. Fauci took the same medicine, and the same thing happened to him. Uh, he was positive. He took the medication, and a few days later, uh, bounced back. He was he was positive again, uh, and that's what seems to have happened to President Biden. Now we see that the White House is telling us he is now in strict isolation. Strict isolation. What does that mean, strict isolation? Um, so here's, here's a couple theories. Number one, the man is actually really sick with the COVID. Now we know that he's older. We know that he is, does have comorbidities. He's had uh, health issues in the past. I certainly hope he recovers quickly and fully. Uh, I may not agree with his policies, but he is the president of the United States, and therefore he is my president, and I want my president to be healthy and strong as he possibly can be. So I wish him well, and I hope he's okay. That's one possibility. He actually has it, and that's why they're being very strict with his isolation. The other possibility is maybe they don't want him out in the public, and this, they're using this as a way to hide him so he doesn't say anything dumb or say anything stupid. Uh, there's a lot of big things going on. These bills... Um, the the, uh, the incidents with China, what could it go on there with the Ukrainian war, uh, the economy. I mean, he, he does have a tendency to make gaffes, say dumb things, be confused. Uh, so maybe this is a way to keep him out of the public eye. Is that a possibility? Well, when you examine something like this, and say, uh, Lieutenant uh, Joe, that's a conspiracy theory. Nobody would do that with him. Well, let's um, let's think about that. Is there any historical data to say that they might do that? Well, yes. Let's look at the campaign. Campaign for president, uh, when he ran, he, he would have a rally, uh, very few rallies, but when he would have a rally, there would be, what, uh, 20 people, 25 people standing in circles, uh, and Donald Trump would have a rally, and there'd be 20,000 people. But Mr. Biden would have a rally, and there's only a few people. Then they put him in the basement, and, oh, they controlled uh, his contact with the media. Does he give press conferences? as regularly as Donald Trump or any other president. He doesn't. When he gets off the helicopter, does he stop and answer press questions for a half hour, 45 minutes, like Donald Trump used to do? No, he doesn't say two words. He gets, he gets wished away into a car. Maybe he makes a, a quick comment, and then away he goes. Does he take, in press conferences, does he take lots and lots of questions from the media, from the media that is not um, on his team, from the, or from the liberal media? Does he answer questions? Not really. Uh, when he does take questions, they are pre-scripted questions from specific reporters that they know will ask softball questions and not follow up afterwards. So there is a historical uh, evidence that maybe they are keeping him out of sight while all of this uh, very serious stuff is going on so that he doesn't say anything stupid, that he doesn't make a comment that changes uh, national policy, uh, that he's maybe just confused. Maybe he's just... Uh, you know, not not capable enough to keep up on all these things. You know, and that's that's very sad for him as a human being. Um, but I, either way, there, he's in strict isolation, and we'll see what that means. I certainly hope that he can uh, he gets better and he gets well soon, because like I said, he is our president. But that's interesting. Now, in the last couple of days, last couple of episodes, we have talked about crime and seeking justice, and and where is crime and what's going on with crime. Well, we just had an incident in New York's Times Square. Times Square, I tell you, I was there in the um, early 80s, late 70s. It was nasty. 
Times Square was horrifying. Prostitutes, uh, peep houses, uh, drugs. It was a mess, Times Square. It was not the fun place uh, that we seem to think of recently. And then Rudy Giuliani came in, cleaned it up, and became a beautiful place. Um, you know, the American Mall is what it was. You could go there and hear concerts, and there was people there. It was fun. Great. Well, here in broad daylight, in our day of crime that we now have, um, the Biden crime wave is, what I guess, what we have to call it, um, a guy slashed a woman's face with a box cutter or a knife in broad daylight in Times Square, and he was arrested. What's interesting about this, two things. One, the victim was an Asian woman. Now, we are seeing across the country a lot of uh, attacks on Asian people, uh, Asian women, Asian men, elderly, young. There was a woman uh, beaten to death uh, in the subway. We had uh, other slashings. We had uh, you know elderly people punched in the face and knocked down. Well, this woman... Um, a matter of fact, in our last show, we talked about a woman who was beaten by three teenagers, uh, three youths, uh, as uh, Herman Munster, as the judge would say, uh, three youths um, beat this woman up, an Asian woman. And now this guy attacks an Asian woman in Times Square and cuts her, and he was arrested. The other interesting thing, besides who his victim was, is that the, uh, the guy who did it has 30 previous arrests. 30. Three zero. So let me ask you a question. How many arrests do you have? How many arrests do you have? Do you have 30? Well, you must have been a criminal. Do you, do you have 20? Do you have 20 arrests? You don't have 20 arrests? Okay. Do you have 15 arrests? No? All right, let's say you have 10. You have 10? You don't know you don't have 10 arrests? Let me tell you, for my time in, in law enforcement, I can tell you that uh, it's not just hardened, bad criminals that get arrested. Sometimes regular, average people find themselves in a position where they did something stupid or they bent a rule or they went too far or they were involved with drugs and alcohol and they did something dumb and they got themselves arrested. So when somebody, you know, they, has an, they have an arrest in their record, okay, I, I kind of get it. It doesn't make you a career criminal. You could be somebody who did something stupid. Um, maybe you have two. You know, after two, once you start getting after two, What's up with these judges that saw this guy all these times? Sir, you've been arrested 10 times previously. I'm going to let you go. How about the judge who saw him after 20 arrests? How come this guy is not in jail, cooling his jets, thinking about his antisocial behavior, and now he just slashed a woman's face? It's his 30th arrest. Why is he not under arrest? Why is not people like this who commit crime against all of us not sitting in a jail cell somewhere, contemplating changing their lives so they stop hurting people? I don't know, but we got, we're going to talk more about crime as we go forward because it's a big deal now. Uh, this is Lieutenant Joe for Chasing Justice. We'll be back in a minute. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. 
your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to Chasing Justice with me, your host, Lieutenant Joe Pangaro, here on the America Out Loud Radio Network. You know, we've been telling some crime stories. I'm working on a new book. Uh, It's called The Investigation. It'll be published by uh, Blue 360 Media to go along with the first book I wrote, uh, which is called The Interview. And these are interview techniques, how to be an interviewer, proper interviewer, criminal interviewer. A security interviewer, that kind of thing. And you can find that book uh, on Amazon, uh, The Interview by Lieutenant Joseph Pangaro. Uh, you can also find it now on blue360media.com, which uh, purchased my publisher, my original publisher, which was Loose Leaf Law Publishing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so the, the next book is called The Investigation, and it's going to be a unique, a unique way of teaching criminal investigation. Now, I was in a criminal investigator for many, many, many years. I uh, investigated homicides, sexual assaults, serial crimes, all kinds of things. And I decided to take that skill set and document it into a book uh, so that people could read it and learn how to conduct proper investigations. Our law enforcement people or investigators or anyone who has to investigate. So the book, The Investigation, should be out end of the year, probably early 2023. Um, but it's, uh, it's something that I've been working on, and uh, I've been telling some stories about crime stories because that's important to me to, to get this stuff out there. Uh, some other things that are going on, we talked about active shooters earlier. The, the, the guy, I, suppose, I guess, guess he's a guy, um, who dressed up as a woman who attacked a parade in Wisconsin and killed seven people. He was indicted on 117 counts, uh, criminal counts, including 21 first-degree murder counts, which was three counts for each victim. Uh, I guess they they totaled it all up. He he was in court to plead guilty, and his mother and father were there, you know, and you have to look at this person and say, uh, of all the lessons we can learn, he was was making a lot of comments, saying and doing things that could have been noticed, might have been noticed, were misunderstood, I don't know, but uh, he was in court today uh, to plead not guilty. You know, now he's going to have his trial, which is good. Um, go through him and, and see what's up with, with that guy. 
interesting thing that we saw today, politically speaking. So I'm trying to decide where I want to go here with this, so I excuse my, my, my lack of uh, intense concentration at the moment. Uh, one of the things we see Zawahiri, Zawahiri, the terrorist who was taken out by the hellfire uh, they call it the flying Ginsu because it shoots these six blades at you and slices you into into ribbons. That's what they did to him. When I talk about a criminal investigation, one of the things I talk about and I've written about many, many times is signature crimes and patterns. Uh, human beings have patterns. We, we act in patterns. We live in patterns. We, we develop patterns of how we behave and what we do, and that's helpful to the criminal investigator. Uh, we, we also have signature things that we do all the time, which is uh, very akin to a pattern. So if I was to ask you, what do you do in the morning when you get up? Many of you would tell me, well, I get up, I go to the bathroom, then I make a pot of coffee, then I let out the dog, then I do blah, 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 whatever it is. Other people would say, oh, I get up immediately and I go running, and then I come back and I eat bread. Either way, you do the same things over and over and over again. Uh, that's a pattern. That's a pattern of your life. Uh, and we all have these different patterns. That's part of who we are as humans. Well, I find that interesting in that um, the CIA is reporting when they had Zawahiri under surveillance, they, they got information, they knew where he was, and they started watching for his patterns of life. Uh, just like any, any criminal would do, a criminal that, you know, they case the joint. You know that saying, case the joint? That's when they go to look to see what's going on here. How does security behave? How do these people behave? That is we, uh, with pre-surveillance of, of any attack scene is what we look for, pre-surveillance because people are looking for the patterns of behavior. When does security come and go? When does the manager come and go? When do they unlock the doors? When do they lock the doors? All that kind of stuff, because people are creatures of habit. Well, apparently Zawarahiri, uh, while he was being watched, had a habit in the morning of coming out on his balcony all by himself. And he would stand there and whatever, whatever ritual he was doing or whatever in the mornings, whether it was personal or religious or whatever, they noticed that multiple times at a certain time of day, he would come out on that balcony. So guess what? They used that information to target the Hellfire missile to when he came out on the balcony, and they got him. And this is how lots of crime is investigated. All right, We, we look for signature patterns that people leave. Serial criminals. Uh, when serial criminals do things, usually uh, the easiest time to catch them is if you catch them early when they're trying to figure out their pattern. You know, how do I get my victim? What will work to get the victim into the car? What will work to get the victim unconscious? Whatever it is. Uh, people that go out and do serial rapes where they, they go to a bar and they, they dose people with date rape drugs. You know, they start to get a pattern of, of their victim. You know, who is this victim? Uh, do they look for people that sit alone? They look for people who are not there with friends. They look for people, all these different patterns they look for. Whether they're doing it consciously or subconsciously. Uh, that's what they're looking for. They know that, hey, I've done this three times and I almost got caught twice. So if I do it this way, my chances are better of not getting caught. So that's the kind of thing that they'll look at. So um, Zawarahiri got taken out because of his pattern, the way he behaved. He did something on a regular basis and they could uh, identify that and come after him. And this is what I'm saying. Uh, this happens in criminal things. We had uh, a serial burglar now you say to yourself, a serial burglar, what's that? It's not like a serial killer. No, it is someone who commits burglaries over and over and over again. And what they do is they have a pattern. They have a, a certain place that they look for to commit their crimes. 
So this one particular guy was one of the first ones that we really recognized, my partner Chuck and I. We started to notice that when we went out to the crime scenes of these burglaries, we noticed that the houses that were being burglarized, these were all high-end houses, you know, they had money, cash, jewelry, stuff in the house. All these houses that were getting hit were on corner lots with woods behind them and no neighbor uh, on either side that could see into the backyard. And the burglar would go into the backyard and shoulder the door, get in, uh, and then steal whatever they were going to steal and leave. So that helped us to understand that pattern that out of 10 burglaries uh, in our town and probably five or six in the neighboring community, uh, another town, were, that were the exact same MO, method of operation, modus operandi, um, is how this person performed their, their, their jobs, the locations that they chose, the signature uh, crimes, the pattern. So we would set up a task force and we would pick corner houses in those high-end neighborhoods that had woods and no neighbors on either side. And we would sit there in a, uh, you know, we had an old van that looked like a painting van, ladders on the roof and this and that, and we could sit in there and see everything around us, and we blended in. Nobody, nobody knew who we were. And before you know it, here comes a guy walking up the street, looking all around, and in the backyard he goes. And we would wait a minute or two, then we would proceed around with our team, and we'd see the back door shoveled in or shouldered in or kicked in or whatever. Uh, and we would proceed into the house and catch the burglar in the act. And we did that many, many times. But we learned how to use patterns. We learned how to use signatures because uh, people are like that. One of the things we teach police officers is that when they're out and about doing their patrols, they should never do the pattern. Like if you leave and you get, uh, say there's five zones in your town where the cops patrol and you're an officer and you get the 51 zone. Well, the 51 zone has a highway, it's got um, uh, some neighborhoods and this and that. And when you go out on patrol, the first thing you do is go get yourself a cup of coffee. Then you go up and down the highway and you check your businesses. Then you patrol through the neighborhood, you come down the back end of your zone and you start all over again. Well, that is, a, that is, a, that is what we call a non-random patrol. So random patrol works better because if people are watching, if they're paying attention to the officer and how they patrol their area, they can now know, oh, once this cop gets his cup of coffee and he goes up the highway, we won't see him again for two hours. And they go and burglarize businesses. Now I can tell you uh, for a fact that we, we caught a group of people who were doing that. Um, they actually sat in the woods near police headquarters and they kept notes on what officers drove what cars and how they patrolled. And then they conducted burglaries based on that. Um, we ended up catching them all and they told us that they did this. This is how they paid attention. So the red-haired cop that drives car 307 on the midnight shift, when he leaves, he goes uh, up the road, he gets coffee, disappears uh, for an hour or two, uh, and then emerges at the north end of the zone. So they knew once he disappeared, he wasn't coming back, and they would do burglaries. So people will look for patterns. Do you have patterns? What are your patterns? So we teach our cops, be random in your patrols. Do things different, right? So we don't set up a pattern that people can identify. One of the things we teach people when they are high-value targets, um, you know, people that are in business that might be kidnapped, that people that might have someone who want to come after their family or do something to them, is not to have... Uh, identifiable patterns of behavior. 
You know, don't go out and go to the same store every day or the first thing in the morning. Don't go here and there. Do things differently. All right, so I think I, I beat that point up pretty good. Uh, but that's an important thing. Look at, look at your behavior. Do you behave in patterns uh, that a criminal could take advantage of? Right? So we want to make sure we don't do that. One of, the, one of the crimes that I investigated back in the day, and I turned it into a course, and it's an economic crime. They used to call them white-collar crime. Now they call them economic crimes. Uh, we call this uh, one bad check. It's an interesting story. Uh, but it shows you there's, there's many different areas of, of law enforcement that are covered here. And I hope you don't mind me telling you these stories because this is, uh, you know, this is justice. This is how we investigate and it's cop stuff. And I hope you find it interesting. Uh, we called it one bad check because that is how the crime was solved because of one particular bad check. So what we had was in my town and uh, the town next door, Asbury Park, uh, we had um, check cashing places. You know, you can go in and cash a check. Now, if you've never been to a place like that, uh, say I have a $100 check. I go in, I give this person the check in the check cashing store, and they take a fee. So if it's a $100 check, they cash it, they might give me $95, they keep $5. Then they present it to their bank and they get the money, right? So they make 5 bucks on, on everybody dropping off a check. They're very popular uh, for people who don't have bank accounts and they need to cash checks to go to check cashing stores. So... These were, they're not illegal, they're not immoral, they're not improper. They provide a service to many people that need it. Well, I had, uh, we had one of those places in our town, and the guy who owns it comes to me, uh, and he, he makes a police report, and he goes, listen, um, I had a guy that's been coming to me for like a year um, dropping off checks, lots of checks, um, maybe 40 checks a week, and every one of them cleared. And I got my money out of the guy. He was a good guy. Uh, they keep a file on the guy. They, they know who he is, picture, driver's license, all that stuff. He goes, but recently, uh, now most of the checks were for $40, $50, maybe 100 bucks, uh, from all different people all over the state of New Jersey. He goes, and they all cleared. There was no problem with the guy. Then one day he comes in and he has like a $8,000 insurance check. Uh, a couple days later, he came in with another insurance check for $14,000. He goes, and you know what? He's a good customer. All his checks are good. Um, so I just cashed him, gave him the money. Well, he was into the guy for probably about $25,000 worth of checks when all of those big number checks came back as fraud. Uh, they were closed accounts. They were no money in the account, whatever. And they were from insurance companies, um, not real numbers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so we start the investigation. Patrolman takes the report. We look at the um, picture of the guy. We had a photograph of the guy in the store standing there. You know, we could see who he is. Uh, and he had a driver's license. And his name, uh, for the purpose of this conversation, we say the name on the driver's license was Bob Smith, right, with an address of a P.O. box, P.O. box 123, uh, Freehold, New Jersey. Now, in New Jersey, you're not supposed to have P.O. boxes as an address. They want a physical hard address. Uh, so they know where to send paperwork and that kind of thing. So he had this license, um, and it had a P.O. box, and that's what he used for ID. So I said, okay, the case gets shuffled to me. I look at the guy. I go to the store. I start talking to people, and they don't have anything on his car, and they only have a couple pictures of him in the store. So kind of, you think kind of a dead end, right? So I realized that he victimized a check cashing store. So then I reach out to the communities around me and that have check cashing stores, and I said, hey, listen, uh, I got this case with this guy, Bob Jones, and uh, he's cashing checks and all of a sudden, well, boom, flags went up uh, in two different towns. 
in Asbury Park, there was a detective I knew said, Joe, I had a case like that uh, two months ago. The guy hit them for, he was, he's been cashing checks there for years, uh, little checks, 30 40 $50 checks, and then all of a sudden, $30,000 worth of uh, insurance checks. They bounce, they disappear, and now the guy hasn't been back. I said, oh, okay, well, what do you have on them? So they send me all their files, and they have the same picture that I have, the same driver's license in my case, uh, and then there was a third town, and I went to that town, and they got, they got hit for about 20000 that check cashing store. So 30, 60, about 80,000 in cash. This guy got out of these stores and now he's gone. So now we start to do our investigation. Where do you think you start with a thing like that? Where would you start? Well, let's ask a question. Is the guy from far away or do we think he's local? Well, if he's, if he's running a bunch of 30, 40, $50 checks, what's that all about? Don't you wanna see those checks? Don't you wanna know what those checks are, who they're from? Uh, because couldn't you then possibly go to any one of those people and say, listen, this guy's been cashing your check, your $30 check every month for, for two years. Um, why do you send him a check? Who is this guy? Where do you send the check? That kind of thing. Wouldn't you want to check the P.O. box office that's on his driver's license and see if there actually is a post office box in Freehold that belongs to this guy? Then wouldn't you want to look at the driver's license, right? Go to the state of New Jersey and ask them to look at the, is it a real license? Is it a real address? Is it a real photograph? Do you have anything else? So then we start to look at it. When I take the idea of patterns into, uh, into consideration, I have to say to myself, what's the patterns that I've seen here? Well, we saw a legitimate pattern for two years of a guy bringing in 30 40 $50 checks and cashing them in three different locations. So you say to yourself, if he's doing this three times a week in my town and two times a week in Asbury and two times a week in the other place, why would you spread yourself out like that? Why would you go to three locations instead of just the one? Cash them all at one time. Why would you go further down the road? So that was a consideration. So that said to me, if he's doing that, maybe he's setting it up so that if one of them had a problem with a check, he could continue to go to the other places. Maybe. So you make a note of that, right? You want to develop a, uh, what do you call it, an investigative hypothesis. So we want to try and figure this out. Um, then we wanted to see, like I said, who were these people? So I, I tried to get copies of the checks, uh, the checks that bounced. Of course, I got copies of those. They were insurance company checks. And as it turns out, the insurance company checks uh, were all um, faked. You know, they were from the uh, insurance company of New York, whatever it's called, uh, New York Insurance. And it was health insurance check, you know, for like when you go to the doctor and the insurance pays. Um, so these, these checks were all big insurance companies. So I went to them and tried to figure out, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we, we've had uh, people steal our account numbers, steal blank checks. So it was very interesting, um, all this stuff that was going on. But we still couldn't find this guy, couldn't find him anywhere. The P.O. box didn't pan out. Um, the people initially, uh, I didn't have everybody's name and number who was giving them $30, $40 checks. The, the check cashing place didn't really keep track of it. Um, other than they knew, well, I know he gets a, he gets a check for $40 he cashes every week for a guy named uh, uh, Parmenter uh, somewhere in New Jersey. So then, of course, you start looking up Parmenter and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, one of the other areas that I could check was just to see this driver's license. Is it a real number? And I found out that um, it was a real number. It was a real legitimate driver's license number, John Jones or Bob Jones, whatever he called himself. 
And when I asked the Division of Motor Vehicles for the records, you know, I got the rec subpoenaed the records, and they give me a P.O. box as an address. When I asked them, how do you get a driver's license with a P.O. box? And like, uh, maybe it was an inexperienced clerk who didn't realize they couldn't take a P.O. box, but that's the address we have for the guy. Um, it's P.O. box. And that was the P.O. box in Freehold uh, that had no connection to this guy. Fake name, bad addresses on that. You know, of course, he listed 123 Main Street in Happy Town, and there was no such address, but the post office didn't care. So now I'm kind of stuck, ain't I? kind of stuck here. And this is where uh, the detective in Asbury did all he could do and then couldn't get anywhere and basically, you know, put the case to rest. Oh, well, can't help the victim anymore because we've got nothing on this guy. And I was kind of reaching the same dead end. What the heck am I going to do here? So when I thought about the DMV, a last question, it came to like Columbo. Remember Columbo as he's walking out the door? You know, thanks for your help. I appreciate it. Oh, wait a minute. One more question. One more question. So as I'm leaving the DMV, I said, listen, if this is out there as a legitimate license, uh, then there's a chance that this guy was stopped at some point by a cop, gave the license, the license came up good, it was valid, uh, points, no points, whatever, uh, he'd be good. I said, this guy have any tickets on his record, a parking ticket, anything? And they looked through and they found um, two tickets that were issued to the guy. Uh, so I got the names of the officers, copies of the tickets, and it was two different towns in the Jersey Shore. I went to the first guy, and he's like, uh, now cops are supposed to put notes and stuff on the back of their tickets. Uh, it was 3 o'clock when I saw the guy roll through the red light. and, this and So you can testify in court. That's the idea of making notes on your, on your traffic tickets. And there was no notes on the first officer. Uh, this guy got a red light ticket, which um, apparently he ran right down to the DMV and he paid. And the P.O. box address was on the ticket, and that was that. The second cop, this patrol cop, was a slick young man. He was pretty smart, and this is why we call it one bad check. I really should call it um, one bad ticket. Um, what this cop did, um, I went to Eatontown where the officer worked and issued the ticket, and I went to the court clerk and I said, hey, can you look up this ticket for me? And the clerk looked it up and I said, can I see the, uh, the back of the ticket and all the notes? And there, on the back of the officer's ticket, he had written a regular address. So I went and I asked for the officer. He came in. I said, dude, you got this address in Jackson, New Jersey, a house address. I looked it up. It's a real house. How come you asked for that address? And he says, well, detective, uh, you're not supposed to put a P.O. box on your driver's license. And I wasn't letting the guy go until he told me where he slept at night. I said, dude, that was great piece of police work. A tiny little thing like that. He gave me the address. I said, now the car, it says the car was a, uh, what was the car? The car was a Corvette, right? So now the guy's driving around in a Corvette. I got the license plate. Uh, the plates came back to the same P.O. box um, that was faked. Uh, but we knew it was a Corvette now, a 1986 or 87 Corvette. And, and we have a house address. So I thanked that patrolman because he made the case. The patrolman... That one thing that he did to realize this ain't right. You can't put a P.O. box down, put down a real address, and he wouldn't let him go till he got a real address. Now, that could be fake too, but investigation is what has to be done. So I drive out to Jackson, New Jersey. Now, if you know Jackson, New Jersey, it's a big rural community. It's building up like crazy. It's 120 square miles, something like that. A great adventure is, uh, is part of Jackson Township. So you have some areas building up, lots of new homes, lots of new developments, lots going on in Jackson, New Jersey. Great police department, by the way. Uh, so anyway, I go out there and I'm riding around 
and I find this address. And son of a gun, if there isn't an actual address that this cop wrote down on the back of the ticket. So I'm in an undercover car. I'm not in a police car, and I'm in an undercover car. And I'm driving by, and I'm looping through the neighborhood, and there's the house. Guess what? There's a Corvette sitting in the driveway that matches the description on the ticket. And there's a guy sitting on a porch smoking a cigar while a little kid plays on the lawn, and he looks exactly like the guy in the photograph. So now, I said, I got the guy. I know who he's here. Now we know it's a fake name. He has fake ID. He has all kinds of stuff. But the guy is definitely here. So over the course of the next day or so, uh, I kept checking the house. So the car was there. I saw he had a, a wife, a wife and a kid, and he was constantly out front with the kid, and this was our guy. So I got uh, search warrants for the house, for the car, um, and then I got a, an arrest warrant for John Doe. Uh, or John or Bob Jones, a.k.a. John Doe, because we didn't really know his name. When I checked with the, uh, the township, we found that the house was bought in the fake name. Uh, there was a mortgage paid, and the guy owns this house. Beautiful, beautiful house. Nice neighborhood and everything. So it was so funny. On the day, of, uh, the day we arrested him, uh, I got my team together. We had uh, five detectives from my detective bureau, uh, two patrol cars, and then we had Jackson Township's detective and three of their patrol cars. And uh, I got there, uh, I don't know, probably about 9 o'clock in the morning. I drove past. The Corvette was there. Um, the guy came out. He was watering flowers, so I knew he was home. Uh, I looped around, and I actually drove past him, and I looked at him, and I waved at him like I'm just another neighbor. Hey, how are you? And he waves back at me like, who's that guy? I went around the corner where the team was waiting, uh, and I said, let's go. He's there. Let's go get him. So we approached from two different angles. Uh, we stopped in front of the house, and it was funny. He was sitting on the porch now smoking his cigar. <laughs> and like you could see, like all these police cars coming up the block, and he, ooh, he's looking. What's that all about? And then all of the cop cars stop right in front of his house, and the cigar just dripped out of, just dropped right out of his mouth, like, uh-oh. And I got out, and I walked up to him. Hi, how are you? I'm Detective uh, Pangaro. These are Jackson Police and Ocean Police, and here we are, and I have an arrest warrant for you. You're under arrest. For what? What, are, what am I under arrest for? You're under arrest for fraud, for theft, blah, blah, all this kind of stuff. And I handcuff him. Uh, his wife comes out of the house, and she's like, oh, my God, what's going on? I said, your, your husband's under arrest. We have a warrant. Here's the warrant. Um, and now, of course, we have search warrants. I said, we have search warrants. We're going to search your house. We're looking for records of uh, checks. We're looking for uh, paperwork and all that kind of stuff. And I'm putting the guy in the police car. And he says to me as he gets, goes to get in the car, he goes, listen, uh, don't charge my wife, man. I, I, I Don't charge my wife, please. It, it's just me. It's just me. I said, hey, no problem. We'll get to you in a few minutes. We'll be in to talk to you in, in the headquarters. Right now, I'm going to do my search. So we, we, we took the guy out of there. Uh, the wife now, she was very nice. Younger woman, much younger than him. He was, he was in mid to late 50s, and she was like 26 or 27. Oh, yeah, there's the other side of the story. Uh, she had been the babysitter uh, for this guy and his wife. Uh, and then uh, she went from babysitter to, uh, to wife when he divorced his wife and threw his wife out and uh, hooked up with this young girl. So anyway, she was very nice to us. We came in, and we, would you like coffee? You guys want some tea? What's this all about? We said, well, this is about uh, your husband cashing lots and lots of checks, and uh, we don't understand what's going on. Well, she was very good. Uh, we advised her of her Miranda rights because she, you know, she was a suspect. She was in the house, uh, a precaution, and she waived her rights, and she goes, oh, no, no, he's not stealing. That's his business. I said, oh, what's his business? She said, uh, he is a debt collector.
and he collects debts from people, and then he sends the money to uh, to the doctors that owe the money. And I said, oh, really? Uh, does he have records of this? And she took us downstairs, and there was boxes and boxes and boxes of people's records. Uh, the long and short of this whole case, what he did is he was a legitimate uh, bill collector, and he was given um, $2 million worth of accounts to collect on, he was told he could keep 30% of whatever he collected. So you figure 30% of $2 million is a lot of money. And he had the insurance companies and the doctors that couldn't, couldn't collect from their clients gave him all the records, the personal records of the people who defaulted. And based on that, he started collecting money from them, and then he started keeping the money. And that's why he was taking their checks, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of checks of 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks at a time and cashing them at a check cashing store and keeping the money. The people who thought he was collecting for them figured he just couldn't do it and they closed out the accounts. Long and short of it, uh, we took his house, we forfeited the house because that was paid for with bad money. A couple hundreds of thousands of dollars he had stolen from people. Uh, and then we got the insurance companies to clear the records of all the people they were trying to collect on because they had paid and he just stole it. So I hope you didn't mind that story, one bad check. Uh, it was one check that led to the investigation, and that cop did an awesome job by writing down the document. So that's what happens in investigations. So we're going to talk more and more about crime because this is Chasing Justice. I'm your friend, Lieutenant Joe. We'll be back for the next episode here on Chasing Justice. <laughs>